Let's start. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass. And um, actually, I want to give it, um, a special thanks for this class. Um, so often, every time I've gone back to a work that I haven't dealt with for years, um, it's always been wonderful to go back to see how much richer they each get which, with age. And there's such a deep wisdom. Um, the course is called Literature's Prophecy because there's a prophetic character to so much of what we've read on this side of prophecy, and now we're going to prophecy itself. So, <laughs> um, I don't know what to say. Help us not to take your gifts to us, particularly in the Gospels, for granted. I mean, there's no way to say this except to say in the Gospels you're speaking directly to us. There's a mediator, there's a, a prophet, um, but his words are directly from you to us. It's so easy to take your words for granted and get used to hearing them, but um, I'd be glad if um, all of us were a little bit shaken or um, took a second deeper look at what we've become accustomed to in our tradition, in our masses. So for the great love you have for us, the great honor you show us in what you do all the time, um, we are grateful. Ask for a special blessing on all of those prayers that each of us is holding. I don't know why everybody's so quiet tonight, but I'm too old not to know that everybody's got some burdens, all of us. So, um, whatever burdens anybody's carrying, light or grave, help them to take some joy, whatever sorrows that are connected with those burdens. Um, help all of us, no matter what we do, no matter what we do, to be grateful, um, particularly with whatever suffering you allow us. Um, our sins are a great correction. Bearing them is a reminder that we need you. So even with our sins or whatever guilt or shame or sadness we all carry, strengthen us always in a joy to not despair, to stand up straight, as you've asked, um, to trust in you, um, that some work is going on with all of us. Um, help us to know that deeply in our hearts, um, to bring our joy, a greater hope, a greater faith, a greater love to all that we do. Did I ask a, um, a blessing on bed? It's a friend of our daughter who um, had a fall and underwent some surgery. Um, there are a number of people in our parish and both parishes that um, are suffering from age ailments. So, Pat um, Pat's, Pat's not here with her sister, but watch over all of us. Um, ask for a prayer for Barbara, too. Um, if she doesn't talk tonight, I know more than a few of us will be sorry not to hear her, but we are grateful for all that you do. Of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here, let it be here with all of us as it is in your kingdom. Help us to quiet ourselves into your kingdom. To 
carry it in everything we do. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, okay, let's, there's a lot to do, so let's get to Elliot. We started the dry salvages, or I mean, sorry, sorry East Coker, um, with Elliot. Um, and, um, I'm going to read the second section. Uh, remember that in East Coker, Elliot is dealing more explicitly, more directly with um, things coming into being and things passing away. It's a little bit like ecclesiastic. It's a time for growing. There's a time for dying. Things come to be. Um, things pass. With all of his focus on those two processes of everything in nature, that's everything in nature, there is that still point. Um, I suggested last week that even the even the existence of seasons, the cyclical nature of things. I gave the image of the dancer, remember? You know, or the couple dancing. and um, Every turn, every twist, every jump, particularly in a couple, implies a still point. If that still point were there, they couldn't make their jump. There has to be something there holding them in time. It's true for dancers. It's true for all the things we've talked about. It remember, it's central to Boethius. It's central to Shakespeare, Dante. Um, it's central to the seasons. Things come and things go. How could they keep repeating in a cyclical nature unless there was some center, something holding, around which the seasons move? So, it's everywhere. All art implies a perfection, all of it. Even splashes on a, you know, like a, what's his name? The, the Pollock. Pollock. Um, even a Pollock painting um, has whatever art it has by virtue of that frame. It frames some motion that implies a still point. It's true of all art. It's true of all sciences. Um, so even though his focus is on things coming into being and passing, um, all of these things um, imply a still point. Part of the beauty of what Eliot does is that he roots us in passing things. Remember in the opening section, um, old fires to ashes, ashes to earth, which is already flesh, fur and feces, bone of man, corn stalk and leaf. He keeps giving us these images as if they're random because they're of nature. He's asking us to pay attention, to know that no matter what it is in nature, I mean, part of the beauty is he roots us in nature. He's just describing things that are before us. Feces, ashes, fur, cornstalk, leaf. Um, all of them imply something more. So even though he seems to be just giving us these images, the way he, the way he describes them in balance, in opposition, to one another, all even his lines imply a music, a still point. That's why they're poetic. He doesn't just give us chaotic lines. They're poetry, they're beautiful poise to set against each other. So we feel this music when we hear them. You know, even if we don't conceptually formulate an idea in our head, we still experience these things, all of which suggest that there's something more. Um, so he ended 
the first section of East Coker with these lines, keeping time, keeping the rhythm in there, dancing as in their living in the living seasons, the time of the seasons and the constellations, the time of milking and the time of harvest, the time of coupling of man and woman and that of beast, feet rising and falling. Notice the balance, the way he sets things off so that even though he's not keeping a strict metrical form, say the way Shakespeare would have or Dante, the, the lines are very rhythmic, very controlled. We always hear that musical underline, that, that rhythm. Feet rising and falling, eating and drinking, dung and death. Dawn points and another day prepares for heat and silence. Out at sea, the dawn wind wrinkles and slides. I am here or there or elsewhere in my beginning. It brings up that question that I've asked so, so often. Where are we at any moment of the day? Not just when we receive the Eucharist, but if we believe in Christ, where are we? You know, each of us is home sitting somewhere and we're there. But where else as well, okay? So section two of East Coker. What is the late November doing with the disturbance of the spring and creatures of the hum summer heat and snowdrops writhing under feet and hollyhocks that aim too high, red into gray and tumble down, late roses filled with early snow, thunder rolled by the rolling stars, simulate triumphal cars deployed in constellated wars, Scorpion fights against the sun until the sun and moon go down. Comets weep and leonids fly, hunt the heavens and the plains, whirled in a vortex that shall bring the world to that destructive fire which burns before the eye cap rain, the ice cap rains. It's a description of entropy, of things wearing down, even in the constellations which seem to be permanent. That was a way of putting it, not very satisfactory. A periphrastic study in a worn-out poetical fashion, leaving one still, hold on to that word, leaving one still with the intolerable wrestle with words and meanings. The poetry does not matter, it was not, to start again, what one had expected what was to be the value of the long looked forward to, long hoped for calm, the autumnal serenity, and the wisdom of age? Had they deceived us or deceived themselves, the quiet-voiced elders bequeathing us merely a receipt for deceit, the serenity only a deliberate habitude, the wisdom only the knowledge of dead secrets? <coughs> Unless in the darkness into which they peered, from which they turned their eyes, use, sorry, useless in the darkness into which they peered, or from which they turned their eyes. There is, it seems to us, at best, only a limited value in the knowledge derived from experience. The knowledge imposes a pattern and falsifies, for the pattern is new in every moment and every moment is a new and shocking valuation of all we've been. We are only undeceived of that which deceiving could no longer harm. In the middle, not only in the middle of the way, but all the way, in a dark wood, in a bramble, 
on the edge of a grippen, where is no secure foothold, and menaced by monsters, fancy lights, risking enchantment. Do not let me hear of the wisdom of old men, but rather of their folly, their fear of fear and frenzy, their fear of possession, of belonging to another, or to others, or to God. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. The houses are all gone under the sea. The dancers are all gone under the hill. It's stunning. You know, he's warning us against too certain about things, you know, because so many of us, particularly in our age, in a rationalistic age, we think based on the certainties of science, all things are changing. Even whatever discoveries scientists come up will be modified, changed. We're in the midst of mysteries, and so often we do a lot to try to escape them. You know, um, in this particular section, he focuses a lot on what's being lost, um, how much we depend on the elders, and when so much of what they knew has already changed. The opening of section three begins, Oh, dark, 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 they all go into the dark, the vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant, the captain's merchant, he goes on. That'll pick up the third part. Okay. Matthew. Matthew. Um, I just, sorry for not getting the notes to you early. I just, I... There was just a lot there, and um, um, and I wanted to try to get as much of it as I could. I sent off notes just before class, so they're there. If you want to get them and print them, you can, or check them out after the class. <clears throat> I want to ask a couple of questions that pick up some of the questions we talked about last week. And once again, just ask that you keep these questions on your mind as we go through the gospel, okay? Um, we could ask the same questions of any of the four gospels, but we're right now we're focusing on Matthew. So keep these questions on your mind. Um, what, what is it that each of the gospels is attempting to do? Simple question, what are they attempting to do? Um, what's their purpose? Um, what's the basis of authority for each of the Gospels? I suggested that it's different and it's important to recognize the difference. Remember that Matthew begins with that um, description of the genealogy leading to Christ and it's broken up symmetrically as if there's almost a design to it. Um, it seems to me that the, the two principles around which the, you know, the series of 14 that he, that he refers to I think um, the center for Matthew is King David um, to establish David's place as king and Christ's descent from him as king. And the second is the deportation, the, the loss of Jerusalem. And it seems to me that's one of the pointed references for Matthew because it was during that that the Jews had lost their way. I mean, there, that was an effect of their apostasy. They're having turned away from God and lost their homeland, the temple. It's one of a number of times in their history when 
um, the corruption they gave themselves to resulted in the loss of everything they valued. I, we could point to today and ask if something like that isn't happening to us. What's the basis of authority for each of the Gospels, in this case, Matthew? Um, 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 what's the evidence of, um, of what Matthew presents? If if the if one of the purposes is or if the if the main purpose of Matthew is to reveal God, um, to show that God actually entered time and was with us, Emmanuel, God is God with us. Um, what's the evidence um, that this man who came into the world who called himself the Son of God? What's the evidence that what he says is true or what he says or did? What's the evidence? Do we believe it? Why? Um, as I suggested earlier, um, that so many modern critics talk about the Gospels in a way that should raise questions for people whether they're true. I'm going to come directly to that in a second, but these are some of the just important questions that I'd like you to keep on your mind. Why did he write the Gospel? What's it for? What's its purpose? What's the evidence for what he's claiming? What's the evidence? If Christ is God, what's the evidence? Do we believe in it? If so, why? Um, <clears throat> is our reading of the gospel simply a matter of faith? Is reason involved in it? And if so, how do we put those two things together? These are just basic to some of the things that we've been doing. What do we learn about Christ um, in Matthew um, and what do we learn about him if we see Matthew in light of the other Gospels? So those are just basic sort of questions to keep in mind for what we're doing. I want to go back to some, just to recall, again, review some of the things that we've looked at the last couple of weeks. Um, um, in the history leading up to Christ and to Matthew's Gospel shortly afterwards, Jerusalem was surrounded by um, enemy nations. It was, um, they were surrounded, really engulfed by um, the Seleucid Empire, the Greek Empire. Um, what happened after Alexander died is that his empire descended to um, a number of people and um, it got broken up and a number of the Seleucid kings um, wanted to strengthen their grasp on Jerusalem in Judah. So Judah was constantly under attack by these Seleucid kings, these, these descendants of, of the Greeks. We get a, probably the clearest picture of what's going on right up almost to the time of Christ in the Maccabees um, books in the Old Testament, Maccabees 1 and 2. And if you read them, they're really interesting because they're, they're, just, they're history books. They're history books. They're, I, they're, there's not any other books in the Old Testament quite like them because they're describing the Maccabees, the, the sons, carrying on a guerrilla warfare against these warring nations who are trying to um, take over Jerusalem, Judah. And they do. They take over the temple. They use the temple um, um, to sacrifice their own idols. They force the Jews to do the same. Lots of Jews capitulate. They give in. 
um, they build a gymnasium and make the Jews go there, and it's one of the ways they have of, of um, exposing or discouraging the Jews from circumcision because it'll show physically. In fact, I think some of the Jews actually tried to regain or put on a skin again. How you do that, I don't know. So they wouldn't be embarrassed or caught um, because lots of Jews were killed if they didn't conform to the ways of this new Hellenic culture. So this Greek culture that we read about in, you know, Iliad and that we know about from Socrates and, or I mean from Plato and Aristotle, was an enemy and a threat to the, um, to the Jews. In the year 164 BC, um, the, the, the Maccabee line um, helped recover Judah and the temple in Jerusalem. And in, in to honor that day of recovering the temple, the Jews instituted this holiday called Hanukkah. It's a, it's a week-long celebration in honor of having recovered the Holy Temple. I, if you, if any of you, I don't know what you know about Jewish history, but I think most of us have heard the word Hanukkah. It comes from that day. Um, they regained their place with Yahweh because up until that time they were being forced to bow down to make sacrifices to these pagan idols and they recovered themselves. But shortly after that, um, um, Judah and that surrounding area was conquered by the Romans. So the Jews went from one ruler to another. And you can imagine how much that would have intensified their hope in the coming of a Messiah. So when Matthew's writing, he's writing to an audience that's under Roman control that has just escaped this, these Hellenic influences. And he's writing at a time when this man comes into the world who says he's the son of God, and he's drawing more Jews away from the Jewish tradition. So you can see what a, what a confusing time this was. It reminds me of what we experienced in Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. We're watching a culture um, explode, implode from within, just break down. Um, so into this time of despair and loss and confusion, a question of their identity, who, what god are they to believe in, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, their own god, the gods that have been revealed in their own scriptures, um, comes Christ claiming he's the Son of God, and then doing all of these things that are um, in, um, inspiring to lots of people and upsetting um, to others. Um, they don't know what to make of him, that a man could do the sorts of things that he was doing and claim that he was God. Um, we, we were on the phone last night with a, with a dear friend, deeply, deeply Catholic. I was talking about um, some of the writers who were attempting to reconcile science with religion and we were just going through some of the influences. One of them was a, a theologian, Karl Rahner. I, I don't want to get into that, but but um, one of his last comments as we got off the phone with each other was to, to remind us that um, Christ is an irritant. I thought it was a beautiful word. Those of you who have been with together in this work that we've done together. You've, you've recalled those times when I've talked about Socrates and what he did and how upset he left people. He was called a gadfly. 
if you remember that he upset people, he was always buzzing in people's ears and getting them upset and angry. And finally led to his, um, to his trial, um, accused of being impious, when everything he did was because he got this call from the gods, and he was executed. Christ is an irritant. I know that's probably not a name you're used to associating, but if you think about it, to try to live Christ can be irritating. I mean, we can get on each other's nerves, husbands and wives, parents and children. He even said, I came to divide fathers and sons, father, you know, all of that. So into this culture comes this figure who says he's the, whom we know or believe is the son of the father, the second person, who's upsetting people everywhere. And he gets, he gets irritated at his disciples more than a few times. Um, so that's the general historical background. We encounter some of the problems we have in reading the Bible because of the Copernican revolution, science, because it, it threw all authorities into question, and because of the Reformation, because of the subjective tendencies that it encouraged. Luther made faith and the personal ex private experience of each person more important than any objective reality of Christ. So, so many of the modern tendencies that we know, subjectivity, relativism, that you can, you can have within the Protestant world, 200 denominations. Each one of them is going to claim the truth for itself, um, leaving us with the sense the truth is whatever we want to make it. What's true for one person um, is different for another. Um, so it raises these questions. How are we to read the gospel? And I've suggested that for our last couple of meetings that it's absolutely essential that we read the gospel differently from the way we would read anything else. The gospel is prophecy. Um, no other religion has it, this. It's one of the things that makes Christianity sui generis in itself. It's not like any other religion to take a course in, um, on world religions and include Christianity, in my mind, makes no sense. Christianity is not like any other religion. None, none can compare with it. It's a thing in itself for a number of reasons. Um, do we not read the Bible the way we would read philosophy or history or physics or literature? Lots of people in our modern world have been encouraged to read the Bible as literature as a way of reacting to what the sciences have done with literature or with scripture because the sciences tend to treat scripture um, reductively to, to bring it into line with scientific discoveries. Let me just give you a, I wanted to give you a couple of examples of things that, um, here. I just took this off of Wikipedia, um, just to give you some sense of, Wikipedia is a neutral body. I mean, or it may, they try to do everything they can to check their sources. I mean, I believe that there's a real integrity to what they try to do, but they represent a modern, sort of secular, skeptical mindset. In their description of the Gospels, it says, the majority view argues that the Gospel of Matthew is a work of the second generation of Christians for whom the defining event 
was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans in 70 AD in the course of the First Jewish-Roman War. The defining event was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70? Not at all. I mean, I couldn't disagree with that more. The defining event of Matthew or any of the Gospels is the coming of Christ. Is he real or not? Remember, St. Thomas said the whole point of revelation from God was to help us gain our salvation, that we needed help. God offered the help by helping us to see things we could not get by the use of unaided reason. We needed faith. We needed to hear something from God himself. That's a place the modern mind, the modern secular mind, is not going to go. From this point on, what had begun with Jesus of Nazareth as a Jewish messianic movement became an increasingly Gentile phenomenon involving in time, evolving in time into a separate religion. Those are the opening descriptions of Matthew, and they could apply to any of them. Um, so he's depending on a, a majority view. That according to that majority view, by the way, we don't, we don't know who the authors of the Gospels are. That's a modern secular view. Um, in their minds, they're anonymous. And they're claiming that the names that were given to the Gospels were given around 1st or 2nd century, and they say there's no evidence for that. Um, the relationship of Matthew to this wider world of Judaism remains a subject of study and convention. Contention, the principal question being to what extent if to what extent, if any, Matthew's community had cut itself off from its Jewish roots. I mean, if you're following this, you're seeing that a modern secular mind is looking at, at this in 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 a way that makes no allowance that this is the word of God. They have to try to explain it in more rationalistic terms, and that's what we get. The principal question being to what extent, if any, Matthew's community had cut itself off from Jewish roots. Certainly there was a conflict between Matthew's group and other Jewish groups. It goes on and on like that. You, I, you know, I could go down the line and, and give you lines that are sort of amazing. This is one of the reasons why I started our work on the Gospels by going to St. Thomas. Because you remember from our reading, and if you've read the Summa, if you've read, or if, if you've got that Kreef book that I've recommended, the Summa, the Summa, because it's it's just a short version of some of the major sections of Thomas's Summa. He begins where Thomas does. He begins with definitions. The opening questions have to do with Scripture as a science and language, and whether the Bible can use metaphorical language. He's just dealing with fundamentals. Um, so I'm saying we have to be careful. We cannot read scripture the way we would read something else because if we do, it, we will come up with reductive readings. We will explain away the resurrection, the death of Christ, the crucifixion, all the miracles. Because the scientific, the modern scientific mind does not sufficiently, not allow for those. Science is a knowledge of what is, I'm going to offer a tentative working definition just to try to establish the ground again of what we're doing. Science is a knowledge of what is by means of demonstrations. The word science derives from the Latin scientia, to know by means of concepts. 
The word theory derives from the Greek theoria, to know a thing for its own sake or for the truth. Science is a, truth, is a search for truth using reason. Theology is the search for truth using reason. The two have that in common. Theory means to know a thing for its own sake or for the truth. Nobody needed to know the law of gravity to know that 100 years before Christ, 2,000 years before Copernicus. Nobody needed to know the law of gravity to know that when a soldier dropped a large stone on an enemy's head below him, it wouldn't fly up. It would go straight down and hit the guy's head. Why else would he drop it? He was assuming a law of gravity, even if he couldn't define it the way Newton did. Um, nobody needed to know that when you water a plant, it would help the plant grow. Or if the sun came out, you took you take a plant out in the heat to help let the heat work on the plant. There were laws in nature. Everybody is aware of them. What Newton and people before him, Copernicus and others before, even Ptolemy did it with the Ptolemaic scheme. They were attempting to explain, to account for things as they are. Math has come to play a greater role after Newton and, and the other scientists, particularly Copernicus. So it's come to play a major role in the, in the modern world because it seems to give us a certainty, a fixity, a precision that we don't have without it. Um, the difficulty is this that we've been talking about. For the modern scientists, generally, not all scientists, but for a good number of scientists, um, only matter is real. I, I don't think I'm overstating this to say that. For the modern scientists, only matter is real. For most scientists, I know they're not. We, know, we have lots of good friends who don't hold that position, but for lots of people, certainly agnostics and the atheists take that position. It's called a form of monism, that all things are explained by matter. Um, so anything that can't be explained in material terms isn't real, or either that or we haven't quite gotten to understand what its hidden secrets are. But any, anybody believing in a world outside of matter, to a scientist, is unreal. They would use that word. So science is not going to be able to, as a science, it's not going to be able to touch things of scripture, particularly science in its modern form. Thomas, Thomas calls theology a science because he begins with what's real and then arrives at a conclusion, makes a demonstration based on that. What's real for him is the word of God. And there's nothing more trustworthy than the word of God. That's why it was so important to, that all the councils agree on what was canonical, what was not. That's why they made a distinction between some writings that were apocryphal, false, or some writings by heretics who were claiming things about God that weren't true. Um, so he starts with what's real as an act of faith and on the base of that makes a demonstration. And it's on that basis he would call it a science. He's using reason to take what's real make a demonstration using a rational demonstration exactly the way we would. 
Um, there's two forms of knowing, two ways of knowing, a priori and a posteriori, like causes or effects. If you see footprints on a beach, you know somebody was there with a certainty. Somebody had to put them there. That's a certainty. What that thing is, we have no clue about. We know that there's a God by his effects, design, I mean, all of the arguments, contingency, motion, all, all of them. But what God is, we, we don't know, we can't. That's beyond our knowing. But there are things we can know um, if, if we start by accepting that what God has said is real, and that's something we have to take. So for Thomas, there's not this strict black-white separation that there is for most people in the modern world, after, particularly after the Reformation. Um, <clears throat> so let me see if I can make this concrete, and then I, um, unless there's a really hard argument here, I want to go on. But So in the same way that we would say, you know, um, the egg, I burnt the eggs this morning because I left them on the fire too long. The clear causal, I could demonstrate it. I could give an explanation of why. That's as scientific as um, any demonstration a scientist could make. If you read any, if you've read any of the Nobel Prize scientists, you know that lots of those scientists will make claims that are absolutely nuts. I mean, just nuts. Um, so, if I put my plants outside when the sun comes out, it will help them in their health. Um, if I take care of what I do um, um, in my family as a husband, as a father, we'll see the benefits of that. And that's not always easy to see because it requires going deep enough into our own character and the characters of other people to, you know, to do something there. So if, if what Thomas says is true, we can, we can apply the same principle to Scripture. Um, if God gave this to us in order to help us in our efforts to achieve our salvation, and that's why the church is here, we've got that help, it follows if a man does X, Y, and Z, he'll be saved. If his faith is great enough, he can be healed. So these are causal arguments. What Thomas would say was is in some ways scientific. Is the scientific mind, if the modern empirical mind were to look at this, would he would agree with it? No, because he starts with the assumption that the only thing that's real is matter. All other things can't be proved on that basis. If there's something outside of matter, then you've got either you don't have science anymore or you understand that there are kinds of knowledge outside sciences which can be scientific, which can be proved, which can be rationally talked about. A priest who received his powers from Christ could perform an exorcism. So when some priest goes in and this happens, that's a direct result of something whose roots are in Scripture. Same thing with the sacraments. We believe that the sacraments are efficacious. They have an effect. Would a secular agnostic believe that? No. Because the, the matter, the physical properties of the sacraments involve a supernatural order that can't be explained just in terms of matter. So the, the scripture has left us with a problem in the modern world because so many people approach it in scientific terms in a way that's reductive. They try to make it something it's not. 
And often, sometimes who try to reconcile scripture with sciences don't do a good job. They're using rhetoric, verbally, to, verbal, to make arguments that they, they really are not demonstrating a science isn't at work. Thomas wouldn't do that. A good theologian wouldn't. So scripture leaves us with some difficulties. And my suggestion from the beginning has been, has been be careful. Um, we're reading scripture, or certainly I am, reading with the understanding that this is God's word. Um, science will help for those who use it well. Literature will help for those who use it well. Because God's word includes all modes. I, I don't see Christ doing anything that's irrational. Absolutely nothing. People call his performing miracles or exercising demons irrational. I wouldn't call it. I'd say that's the source of reason itself. He's answering evil with good. So we have to be careful when we're reading scripture. Um, but we have to read it on its own. You know that, or certainly it's, it's been a principle of mine from the beginning. If we're going to read literature, we have to read it on its own terms. We cannot make it something it's not. If we're reading philosophy or physics, we have to do the same thing. It's rare for people to be able to bring these things together. But that's, I think, one of the great challenges to the modern world, that we not let the world break down into specializations, because that's what the modern world has done. Can we recover a wholeness? So here at the very end, we're going to Scripture to read the Word of God, God speaking to us. And my claim has been from the beginning, there's nothing more rational, more true, and if we start with a premise from Scripture and we're reasoning logically, we should be able to arrive at a demonstrated conclusion, a proof. St. Paul was taking that as a fundamental fact <coughs> where he couldn't have made the arguments to make the claims he did about what was going on with Christ. Let me stop before we turn to Matthew. Any, any questions or objections? Or I, I got a question, Bob. And maybe I'm just not seeing this the right way. But you say you need to read it differently. And I question that because then I say, okay, should I read a historical book differently or a literature book differently or a science book differently? Because if I look at each genre or type of book mm -hmm. differently, then my mind's going to be all over the place. I've, you know, I've got to look at it from some standard. Right of do I agree? Do I disagree? Does this make sense? Does it not make sense? Now there's faith and there's belief. Right, you can believe the gospel or not. Right, and that, that's a belief thing. But I would tend to think that as a person, you would want to have some basis in your own mind that you look. You know, you try and treat everything as as similar as you can, the same as possible. Right. So when you say read it differently, I mean maybe I'm way off base here, but. I don't, I don't really understand why you would want to read it differently. You may want to believe it versus maybe not be skeptical or whatever, right? You know, yeah. if you want to read a fairy tale, would you read it differently than you would read Shakespeare? And I would say no. You read it the same way. Yeah. How you perceive it in your mind may be a little different, you know, if you, if it's, you know, a fairy yeah. tale or something. But yeah. You know, so I, I guess I'm uh, I'm questioning why you say you would want to read it differently. I don't I don't necessarily yeah. understand. 
Mark, it's, uh, I mean, you're touching on a really knotty problem again. It's one of the reasons I tried to begin with this opening, just to quiet things, even though I know it probably wasn't going to happen. Um, let me just offer a couple of thoughts and, and try to get beyond it, because we've been wrestling with this forever, and I, I'm not sure that I can say anything to settle it, but... Um, I mean, one of the one of the ways of answering your question is to simply go back to the passages that I was reading from that description of Matthew from Wikipedia. If you if a modern secularist, or let's say let's or somebody Islamic, or um, somebody Jewish, we wrestled with this question at the very end of our literature section on this when we were dealing with the same thing. If you lined up somebody who's Jewish or Islamic and Christian, and they all looked at the world, would they see things the same way? No, they wouldn't. Um, and either, either Christianity enlarges and deepens our perspectives on things because the God who came into it was the source of everything, so that what he has to say will throw more light on the world than um, Muhammad or the Jewish rabbis who would have done what they did with the rabbinic tradition. But, I mean, obviously, you, you shouldn't have any trouble with seeing that when somebody, like the person that I was reading from, describing Matthew, he's completely misreading it. He's saying that the central event of it was the destruction of Jerusalem and, you know, going on and on. Um, another way of putting this is it, it, how you read depends so much on your starting point and your premise. If you, if you begin by saying all books are the same, then you're not going to allow for fundamental differences. And let, me, and let me just try to take a second with that. You know from our reading of literature that I, I mean, pushing as hard as I have for these years, that it's really impossible to read a work of literature well the first time because literature is rooted in, it's not rooted in abstractions. It's not in a world of scientific concepts. It doesn't, abs science, represents a language that's a step removed from concrete reality. It, it goes to a law, a principle. When you're going to literature, you're reading concrete, concrete things. So Melville's Moby Dick is very different from Boethius's Consolation or Shakespeare's Winter's Tale or Lear, or whatever you're going to read. When you read literature, you're back in a world of concrete reality, so you're, you're in a world that appears to be random, doesn't make sense, things happen, and yet you see by the time you get to the end of a work that a whole, the artist has framed a whole, so that all those concrete events that take place, even though they seem to be random and don't make sense, suddenly make sense. There's a meaning to them. So that when you go back and reread King Lear, say, you're going to see in that opening scene a meaning you could have never seen the first time you read it. That's going to be true of every work we read. So you can't read literature the way you read history or you can't read philosophy. They're all different. Philosophy, philosophy itself is re represents a conceptual mode of relating reality. It doesn't root itself in concretes. It abstracts. It's going to give you principles. It's discursive reason. It's conceptual reason. When you're in reading Lear, you're not, really, you're not reading abstract statements. You're reading a description of what Lear's doing with his daughters. He's doing something. It's a concrete act. There's nothing conceptual about that. But when you put the whole thing together, you can start talking about it in conceptual terms. When you're reading a treatise on physics, you're all generally, I mean, I don't know enough about it. Fred, I hope will correct me here if I'm wrong. 
it, it will always generally be done through a mode of mathematics, a mode of abstraction where some quantifying goes on. So that what the mind does with concrete realities is abstract from them. You're not going to be talking about a concrete line on a tennis court. You're going to be talking about line with no, concrete, no material reality to it. Or let's say, let's say the, the, the notion of two. They're not talking about two birds or two pencils or two cups. They're talking about the abstract concept of two abstracted from any matter. So that anything involving mathematics is going to represent a language that's taking us a step away from concrete reality. So to, to, to become educated in any discipline requires working in that discipline, learning how to read those things because they're all different. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. To, to, to go into it means you'd get scrambled. Here's the option, Mark, and the, the really good philosophers are clear in this. If you go every, into everything saying they're all the same, you've got what most people would call a univocal mind. It's a literalist. It's too literal. It's, it's black and white. All things are the same. And they're not. One of Boethius' principles is there are three kinds of knowledge, and all of them relate us to matter very differently. There are things that we can only know with matter. There are some things that we can know abstracted from matter. There are some things that have nothing to do with matter at all, like God. So we have to make some adjustment in the way that we relate to those things, or we're, we're going to make them bad. So, for instance, some people because they won't make that jump, we'll, we'll see God in everything in nature. That's a form of pantheism. They don't see a transcendent God. They don't see something behind the universe. They only see something working in nature. So if you don't learn to make that adjustment, you read univocally, too literally. Reality is multifaceted. It's a quiv a univocal. What's the other? The, it's not univocal, but it's multivocal. It's it's many voices. It had different ways of so. Um, if we if if somebody in the sciences who doesn't accept that there's something more than matter reads the scripture, he's gonna he's gonna say it's all wrong. Um, so to be educated, I mean, really, I mean, it it you the, the more educated you become, hopefully the the more you get a hold of your field so that you can do more with it. But I would think that most people who've read well long enough would come to a point where they realize there's an awful lot I know, and I know well. It just makes me aware that there's so much more I don't know that I don't know well at all. You know, and, and because precisely because, try to be a, I, so I've known students who've gone through undergraduate program, tried to major in physics and literature. I can't think of two fields demanding more and requiring such different acts of mind than literature and physics, because in some ways they're opposite to each other. It, they're just hard to know because they require a different way of relating to the world, a different way of understanding. Let me go on, unless there's a really pressing question, or Fred, if you've got a, anything to offer here to help, or a, a, um, an opposition, or a qualification, or... Get some. Um, I, I guess I, I look at 
reading a comic book, for example, very different than reading a physics book. You, you go into that with a totally different expectation <laughs> and, a, and a totally different set of... Can you bring both wines, Dr. Wyden? ...experiences that, that lead you down a certain path. I mean, you go into a comic, and I know they're two grossly extremes, but it's the best way for an illustration. I yeah, yeah, yeah. You go into a comic book with absolutely no expectations except entertainment. That's it. Mm-hmm. And if you happen to learn something from that process, well, that just means it's a really good comic writer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there's a moral in it or something. You go into a physics book, you know that there's years and years of mathematics behind that. Uh, yep. A calculus book. Newton was postulating things that he couldn't prove because he didn't have the math to do it. Yeah. So he invented calculus. So, you know, you, you, and, you know, I, I remember the first time I picked up a college physics book and, you know, I, I thought I was smart and this was going to be easy. And all of a sudden it takes you into a whole new realm beyond anything you've ever had before. Yeah. But the only way you could even have a chance of surviving was that you had all that fundamental physics and mathematics to work with. So yeah. I don't yeah. know. I, I hear, I hear what Mark is saying. I, I, I'm just looking at it from a different perspective, I guess. Um, you know, I wouldn't, you know, Shakespeare is a great example. Um, the Merchant of Venice. I went into that thinking, oh, this is going to be entertaining. <laughs> and, you know, suddenly there was, oh, there was much more to it. Yeah. So, I, you know, you, you go into almost any book, I think, with certain expectations and certain fundamentals. And, you know, sometimes you're surprised by what you find. But, yeah. you know, it's all a little different, I think. Mark, I want to just leave it, if I can, with this comment, because, it, I mean, you've touched on a, again, it's a very, very fundamental thing. I'm glad for Fred's illustration because it is um, radical extremes. But if, if you took his example, and I do, because one of the interesting things, Fred, is that one of the, my great grievances of the modern world in our time is that more and more movies coming out of Hollywood are based on Marvel comic lines. I mean, there's such a dumbing down in our culture. But your, your example is a good one. Um, um, it's interesting because the way you describe physics is the way I would have described literature. And I'm assuming you all know that or you wouldn't be here. I mean, you know, if you, if you take a comic book, you're going to come out of it w- with a really superficial, abstract grasp of something because they work on a level of abstraction. They don't penetrate concrete realities. Take our work on, take Elliot, take Melville's Moby Dick, Take King Lear. Go take the Iliad. Go where you want. There's no way we could have read any of those books without coming to know something profoundly deep about an individual. Let it be Achilles in the Iliad, or Odysseus, or Portia in Merchant of Venice, or um, um, St. Thomas in Murder of the Cathedral. Every one of the works of literature has taken us into the depths of a human being. So it, it's not leaving us in an abstraction, not mathematical, not conceptual, not allegorical. We're not at a level of abstract, abstraction. We've penetrated the mysteries of a concrete human being that has a unique self, a particular self, that makes him radically different from somebody else. What we learned about um, Achilles in the Odyssey 
we can we can generalize about it. We can learn something about ourselves in a larger world. That's one of the gifts of poetry. So we're just not left in a subjective world. We we learn something about ourselves and our world, so we can generalize about it. But we enter into mysterious depths, and it requires a poet, you know, to take four hundred pages the way Homer did in the Iliad to get to that. Um, if we were raised on comic books and, and approached the Iliad, I think most people would have difficulties. I am, I've told you, I'm, I'm laughing at myself and laughing at you guys because I, I don't believe any of you guys, maybe I missed something, found the Iliad easygoing when we read it. I remember the first time I read it because I'd heard about it, it was supposed to be this great book. I came out of it and wondered, what's the big thing? Why, why am I reading this book? But after years of working with it and going to graduate school and you know working with a teacher who brought out more and then my own teaching of it year by year that book got deeper and deeper and deeper there's so much there go back to a marvel comic book once every year i it, it's hard for me to believe that you'd feel enriched i think i've told you that one of my students reads moby dick every year and i can understand why i think it's an extraordinary book it's hard for me to see somebody going back to a marvel comic book every year. It doesn't have the depth. It doesn't have the complexity. It doesn't have the truthfulness. It, it doesn't risk as much. I don't believe there's a poet. Flaubert said, um, it, the, the, the policeman, the fireman, and the priest risk death every day. Or No, the artist, the policeman, and the priest risks death every day. I believe he's absolutely right. I don't believe there's a writer who's worth, I mean, there's, you know, there's lots of people write. But the really great writers to produce what they produced had to risk going inside, relating to their characters internally, what they were, take that on themselves without being overcome by it. That to me is a daring, daring thing. Here, let me, let me try to make it concrete and then I'm, and then I'm going to stop because I don't want to go on. When you read, when we read Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov and we read that section about Ivan when he was either meeting with the devil or having hallucinations about him, remember? There was that exchange that was close, as close to anything sinister. How many people in their ordinary lives can risk that danger? To ask themselves, is there something sinister in my character, evil? Have I confronted it? Do I see myself? Why are we going to Mass if we don't? And render that, because that's a difficult thing to do. The great writers do it. The very greatest, the ones we've been reading. So to enter into the human psyche deeply involves a great risk. To enter a, a marriage, a relationship, involves another great risk, because it means you have to deal with the interior of another person. You have to risk taking that into yourself. Otherwise, how do you become one? You can stay out of yourself and your two different worlds, but if we, if we take what the church says is real, that, that love is unitive, we become one flesh, how do we do that if we don't bear each other's burdens? Why is, why is marriage so difficult? So there's a different way of reading, and, um, and it's something we have to take seriously. Otherwise, we get into this univocal, this black-white way of looking at things, and it means we miss a lot. There's a lot we don't see. I'm, I've never, I, I tend not to look at, 
I've tried to do everything in this course to downplay looking at it as a class. You know that I've wanted to avoid that. I didn't want it to be like my classes at you know the university. Um, but I don't know how to explain the place that I take in it without saying that there's something of a teaching that's been going on all along and a learning. Otherwise, why are you guys here? That, that we're not just reading literature because literature is entertaining. I, I wouldn't do this. I, 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 w I would not have started this. And the only reason for continuing is because um, I love what I'm doing and I so admire what you guys have been doing and my belief that something's been going on changing your life over these years or what's the reason otherwise that spiritually you're not who you were five or six years ago that you see things differently you look at things differently you, that is you read the world differently and if any of you are taking what Fred seriously saying and I do um, um, I know in fact <laughs> I have no kind words for Fred right now because I'm reading a book on science that he's asked me to read and I'm going to go through that even though I'm struggling with this damn thing more than I can tell you. Um, I'm reading that in friendship but I'd like to take the... I told you about that episode where, where Suzanne threw Chesterton at me first time she read it. Just Fred, know that when we're in the same space if I had that book you're in danger. <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> exactly right Tracy. <laughs> You better you better hope I have a sore arm that day. Yeah, thanks for the heads up. <laughs> okay, let's let's go to uh, let's go to Matthew. I'd like to pick up where where we began last time briefly, because um, I'd like to try to get through chapters um, nine to sixteen tonight. Last time we left off looking at the temptations, the three temptations. You remember the devil gave him stones and said, turn this into bread. Christ said, you don't eat my bread alone. He took him to the temple and said, jump off. Um, the angels will save you. He took him to a mountain and said, all this is yours. Bow down and worship me. He said to the first one, man does not live by bread alone. He said to the second, you don't tempt God. He said to the third, you worship God and only God, nothing else. Before we go on, <clears throat> I want to just be clear that we have some grasp of what's going on because in Matthew, it's not true for the other Gospels, but in Matthew, Mark, we're reading Matthew, we're not reading Mark or John or we will, but, but that is we have to read what's here. It's very different from what goes on in Mark and Luke, very different. Um, and there's disagreement about the chronology. Some people say Mark came first and Matthew and Luke based their text on it. Others say that Matthew is the first. I, I'm not a scholar. I, I don't know how to come in. I think the, the long traditional view is that Matthew or Mark was first and, and um, or Mark was first and Matthew and Luke came <clears throat> later. But, but in Matthew, he begins with the temptations, and then Christ begins his ministry. That's not so in the other Gospels, and that's one of the reasons I've been pushing this stuff. So many people look at these things and say, look, there are all these contradictions. I, last time, I underlined the fact that the, fourth, or the three synoptic Gospels end differently 
they each show the women going to the cave in a completely different way. It makes you it makes you say, there Mark, seriously, there's no validity to this. They're all wrong. It contradicts you. They can't get their facts straight. So increasingly people are going to be skeptical. They're going to approach the gospel and say, this is not real. That's the way they're going to read it. I want to take I want to take up those questions. One of the questions I left last week was Matthew wasn't there at the temptation in the desert. Um, he wasn't there when the when the women went to those stones. His description of that is very different from Mark and Luke's. Very, very different. How does he know? And why are these discrepancies? Um, my simple answer to that, I don't, I don't want to get into this right now, my simple answer to that is, if you've got four people on four different corners and an accident takes place in the center of that intersection, you're going to get four different reports. Does that mean that the accident did not take place? No, it did not. But there's going to be enough consistency in those reports to make you say, there's something real there. That's my simple explanation for the but. But I, before we go on, I just want, what's Christ doing? What's he facing in those temptations? Can we take a minute to, to be clear on this again? And why is it important that that happened before he begins his ministry? Because it shows that Christ will not do some things. He's God. He could have done every one of them. He will not do some things which colors our understanding of what he will do. So I just want to be clear. What, why those three temptations? So can we take a minute, please, and, and can we do this briefly without getting bogged down? Because I really want to get into Matthew. More of him. You want, can you turn that light on, Doc? Mm -hmm. Bob, you're going to get my standard answer. You don't question God. You don't ever ask why God decided to do something. He did it because he felt like it. That's all you need to know. And if you ask anything more than that, a large nun will come and crack you on the back of the skull. Oh, no, no large nun is going to come crack. By the way, just and you may have hated him. I don't know where your position is. Our whole tradition, Mark, God bless, I just, why am I doing this? Our whole tradition separates itself from the Protestant world by not taking that position. And it doesn't mean our reverence or our faith in God is any less. Our position is that grace perfects nature, that faith and reason go together. John Paul's encyclical, one of the most important cyclicals he wrote, Fide Ratio. Benedict's, great, one of his greatest achievements during his papacies was the lecture he gave at Regenberg to the fundamentalist Islamic Christian communities. And he said to everybody, you guys screwed it up. A couple of hundred, he's saying this. It's one of the reasons I think lots of people didn't like Benedict. He said, you screwed it up. You took away any notion of the logos. You took away any reality of the importance of reason in, the, in our fallen order. The source of reason is the same source of faith. Mm -hmm. So we should be able to, here, so I, can any, somebody jump in, because allowing that this, um, this isn't questioning it's not challenging God, it's confronting God. And by the way, Abraham, I think, did as good a job of challenging Yahweh as any I know. What if this, what if there's only 
20 men or 10 men or 5 men. God didn't, God didn't come up and crack him in the back of his head, Mark. Um, yeah, but I'm not Abraham. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope to God I have some of Abraham in me because I, he's the father of our faith. So can we, can we answer the question, um, why does Christ do what he does? Look, remember, remember, here's St. Thomas. This is the center of our church. God gave us this to help us understand. If it were completely left up to faith, he wouldn't have done it. He gave us this so we could root ourselves in history. Christ himself does that. Every one of the Gospels begins with John, practically, the baptism. Christ himself being baptized. Matthew begins with a line of genealogy to show that Christ identified himself with that line. He came from a line full of prostitutes, murderers, adulterers. David was an adulterer, a killer. He completely identified with us. Otherwise, what he did would have had no meaning for all of us. He did the same thing in, in being, why would he have been baptized? He, he, he was sinless. He did it to validate the, the rite of baptism and the Jewish tradition because he was going to carry it forward to complete it, to show where it was going when the, when the Jews turned away from it. Christ has no difficulty with the commandments. It's just absolutely clear to say that. He, he'll make it clear in our readings tonight. He's angry at the Jews because he said, you, you turned away from the Father's commandments for the sake of your human traditions. You made them more important your commandments. He's specifically talking about honoring your father and mother in that one passage. Why did Christ do this? What is God helping us to see? What's the, what's the problem with the first temptation when Satan says, turn all this into food? He's appealing to... You want me to be quiet? Yeah, no, go, Doc, go. He's appealing to... Can you all hear, Doc? She, can you talk He's appealing to the, the human of Christ, and human beings have physical needs. And so he's appealing to that humanity and saying, you've been fasting for 40 days, you're really hungry, um, turn this into bread. Deal with your hunger. Um, and Christ is saying, my physical needs are not the most important thing. They're not more important than God. So Christ is, the reason he's doing it is to, is to teach us that we all have needs. They're real, God knows about them, but they're not the most important thing. And we should trust God and not ask him to just meet our physical needs. Or to ever let any of those material needs become greater than him. Because there's a great, and particularly in our materialistic world today, we're so materialistic. And, and by the way, Mark, just remember too, Christ did the major amount of his teaching in parables. And he had to explain to his disciples what he was teaching them when they didn't understand. So he was appealing to their powers of reason and faith for, for them to learn. The greater part of the first part of Matthew and some of the Gospels um, involves that period where he's, it's, 
I think it's important for us to see that what he's doing is preparing the church. He's preparing the disciples to be the first priests, you know, to, to carry on what they're going to do. They can't do that very well if they don't understand what, what Christ was doing. In the first one, he's making it clear that there's a danger for us in making our material needs greater than God. I think that's a real weakness in humans. And he's saying, don't. In the second one, Satan says, throw yourself off. The angels will save you. What's he doing? Tracy, what's Christ showing us there? He says, you don't tempt God. He's saying, throw yourself off and your, your angels will save you. And Christ says, no, he's teaching us again. Or Matthew's teaching us something that Christ gave us in the temptation. You don't tempt God. Meaning what? Christ is not scrabbling stuff. He's not speaking nonsense words. He's speaking words that we're to understand have a meaning to help us become better human beings. He's the source of reason. He's, this is not gibberish. This is God talking. You don't tempt God. What's, what's he, why? What's going on there? Well, I don't know exactly, but if I look at progression, he goes from what Suzanne was saying, something very physical, hunger, and being able to control um, control that. Um, and the other one would be, I mean, if I put myself in the shoes of like the temptation of throwing yourself off a thing and thinking that your angels are going to save you, it's like, I don't know, like a... I think you do. Think thinking you do. that you're in, taking advantage of your immortality or thinking that you're... Um, I, I don't know without thinking like movies and things that come to mind. You know what I mean? Go to a movie. I think those are great examples. You know that. I don't know. Like, um, I'm going to ask everybody for a concrete example here too. And I so I mean, go to a movie if you can think of something. Well, presuming maybe on your, um, if you believe that you have immortality, presuming on that trust, I, I don't know. It's the best I can do. I can't think of a concrete movie. It's just that everything that seems to want to come out of my mouth sounds fantastic. <laughs> you know, like a. <laughs> Fred, you have your hand up. Go ahead. Well, it's it's maybe easier for me to answer the second question first. You know, why why does it precede his ministry? And to me, it it kind of goes back to the to the fundamental basic of our religion, which is. You know, Christ was fully human and fully divine. So if he had had experienced these temptations fully divine from a distance, hmm. it wouldn't have the same meaning for us as it does that he was in the desert for 40 days as a human and he experienced these three temptations and it's, it's kind of an example for us as to how, as humans, we should respond to the three 
you know, basic temptations of man, which, you know, I think we've talked about in Boethius and also the the brothers uh, Karamazov when yep. we yep. had the experience with the great inquisitor. Yep. You know, it's it's hunger or, or food or material need, whatever you want to call that. It's power. Uh, you know, the the ability to control, to you know, to, to be able to, um, you know, reach out and and influence others to get what you want, and um, it's glory. It's the, what the glory, 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 temptation. And so I, I, I think it was, I think it was Christ giving us humans an example of how, as humans, unlike. Adam and Eve and, and, you know, those of us who came before typically respond to those temptations. Um, and, you know, and Christ said it many times during his ministry, you know, you have to put God first above family, above everything. Always. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's, it's him setting that example going into his ministry. Yeah. And, and the third question, I guess, was, you know, Who's Matthew? How did how did he know? Um, I've I've asked myself that question a thousand times, I guess. And and you know, I one of the classic examples is the the writers, whoever they were, were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I I can't argue with that. But I, I, many times in the Bible, there's a little side note, if you will, or lack of a better phrase, that says. He told this and many other stories, or he talked about this and many other things to his disciples. And I figured, you know, you're, you're traveling with this guy for three years. You're, you're sitting around a campfire. I, I, um, I read uh, the Gnostic Gospels, or, or what you can read based on what's left. And the one thing you get out of that was, I think it was the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. You almost get the feeling that that Jesus and Mary Magdalene went off on a walk together, you know, through the, you know, through the palm trees or whatever. You, you got to believe that in three years, you know, Christ that shares some things with the disciples that, you know, maybe maybe not everything got recorded, you know, per se, but you know these things get passed around. Right. Right. And in terms of why they're always a little different in, in many aspects, you know, I, I went through an exercise in an executive training once where we were in this big room with like, you know, there was like a hundred of us and you started a story over in one corner. Yeah. Could you get my watch? And you know, you let it spread across the room no. and you got everybody back together again and everybody's stories a little different. Right. Right. But the, the fact remains that whatever began, the discussion happened, it was real, but, you know, eventually everybody's perception of it was a little different. Right. So anyway, that's, that's my take for what it's worth. Let me, I, I, before we, Mark, let me put you on the spot here too, if I can. What I'm asking right now is for an, a concrete, not an abstraction, not an argument, I'm asking for a concrete example that will illustrate the second temptation. The temptation is a presumption on God. 
And Christ is saying, don't presume on God. Don't tempt him. So when Satan says, throw yourself off, the angels will say, you know, he's, Christ is saying, no, you don't presume on him. You don't. So what I'm asking for right now, just to try to make this clear, is if we can, Tracy too, if you would follow it, if we can come up with concrete examples of the way, as humans, we might presume on God by what we're doing. I want an example of, of tempting God, pr- presuming on him when we shouldn't. Does, does that mean God's going to strike us dead right away? I don't think so. Thinking that you'll get into heaven because you pray and you go to church. That's a presumption on God. <sighs> or that you actually think you believe. Well, let that me... means Catholics do. <laughs> I'm afraid to ask you any questions. Mark, in, in 60 seconds... Yeah, actually, you were really good. You did that in 30, less than 30. In 60 seconds, and I'm saying this, 60 seconds, Mark, that's all you got. I'm going to cut you off. What's the difference between presumption and faith then? Because we're asked to have faith, to trust in God, that he will save us. Presumption so, is thinking that you know the answer, or you have a good idea of the answer. Faith is belief and understanding that you really don't. That you have faith, but you don't have necessarily knowledge. Okay, but... And we know this from Paul, we know it from Christ, that we understand faith to be certain because it rests on the word of God. But Tracy, do you have an example of, of an act? What is presumption? What is, give me an, a concrete example of somebody presuming, a concrete, not an abstraction, not a principle, an actual concrete illustration of somebody presuming on God. Maybe like, I'll do this thing because I know God will forgive me. You say, start to say it again. Like, well, I'll do this thing because I know God will forgive me. So you're saying I'll do, I'll commit the sin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can I put it that way? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I, I commit the sin because I know. I think that's a good example. Um, I mean, there's a danger there because in our weaknesses we can commit it and just say, "Oh, God's going to forgive me." That's a well, date. That's after a, you've committed it, but not before. <laughs> like that mm, is a reason to do it. Well, I would. I would wonder if that's not true before, because Christ Himself said, um, "If you've already lusted after a woman, you know." I mean, did he? What he's he makes no, it I so. That, oh, I sorry. Mean, go ahead. If you've done some, a sin, we all sin, and after you've done it, you're like, "What? I can't believe I did that again." You know, whatever it is, or like, "Oh my gosh!" You know, like you just get caught up. You do stuff before you even know it. I'm talking about when you're like, mm, "I want." to do X, but I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me. Okay, yeah. I can go to confession. It's all right. Right. Yeah. Remember the one of the examples in the Divine Comedy was when that um, bishop um, encouraged the priest to do something knowing in advance it was wrong because he said he'd confess him. I mean, that's a right. really good example. Anybody else? Doc, do you have an example? Somebody tempting God, something concrete. Presuming on God when we shouldn't. Because that means very often if we give in to sins, saying, because I think that's a temptation for all of us. I think it's part of our sins. I mean, I know it for myself, that, um, that God will forgive us. There's a real difference in, um, in committing a sin when you're, when you're not aware of it. And, and in your example, Tracy, doing it when you dismiss it blow it off because 
because um, there really is an act of presumption then, but... I would think it wouldn't have to be a sin. You could do something... Yeah, good. Something that was really foolish. You could... Um, you could meet a guy on January 1st and marry him on January 30th without knowing anything about him or anything about your relationship um, and just saying, I just, I know marriage is, is important and, um, and that I should be really careful with it. But I just know God will take care of me. God will take care of this marriage. And, and I trust him to make it work. Um, that seems to me like a presumption. Um, you should be using your gifts that God has given you to think through it a little bit more and not just assume that God will make it work. I think one of the, I mean, one of the ways of of looking at this that um, that's implied in Suzanne's thing, if I can generalize out from it for a second, I think any time any time we're we're faced with teasing about boundaries, when we ignore them like they're not there, so we're exceeding our limits, there's a danger. I mean, the the word for that is pride. You know that in our pride we think we can do so much. So very often we do things that um, that that don't recognize limits. Those are all acts of presumption. We're presuming in our pride. Um, and, I, and once again, I, I mean, I know we can get subtle about this, that there's, there are times to risk boundaries. I think the issue here is um, presuming on God. Um, but generally speaking, I think it's safe to say that in, in the kinds of things we're talking about, there's generally a, a boundary involved somewhere. And the way we approach it is in presumption. We're presuming too much. And very often the consequence, consequences of that action turn out to be not good. Um, um, Christ is warning us. And, and the interesting thing for here is he's saying, don't tempt God. I mean, um, whatever our boundaries involve, because some very often they involve risks on us. We shouldn't go into them um, taking God for granted in some way. The third temptation seems to, seems to me is so direct. I mean, don't worship any other gods. It means do not give anything in our lives um, the power that God has to give wealth, material goods, pleasure, fame, you know, any of those things that we've talked about. When we allow any of those things to become more important than God, that is too important that we give too much to them and not to God, we're making of those things idols. We're doing exactly what the Jews did. It doesn't have to be a golden calf. It can be a home. It can be a car. It can be sex. It can be drugs. It can be food, whatever it is. But we, we give it a power over us. And the power that it has over us comes because we've attached... We've attached too much to it. We give too much, too much of ourselves to this thing, more than we do God. So it seems to me each of the three temptations point, I thought what Fred said earlier, it really goes to the point that 
that it's really interesting that if he had been, by the way, we know because the only reason for taking on our nature is because he had to answer the sin of man against God. So only a person who is twofold, who is both man and God, could answer our wrong to, to recover justice. But we had, Fred's point, I think, was really well taken, that if he were just God, he wouldn't know the weight of those for us. Christ did. I mean, he took on our human nature completely. He, he experienced our nature from, from infancy to his death. Um, so in each of those three temptations, he shows how vulnerable we are as human beings to, to making things more important than God. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. That's what caused their fall. Because once, once we do that, um, we're giving things control over us, power over us, um, that really belong to God. So, so much of our work as human beings to straighten ourselves out means not giving into those, turning away from those, disciplining ourselves. That, that's why purgatory was so important in Dante's Divine Comedy. It's the work of answering those sins in ourselves, disciplining ourselves to, to, to undergo this purification um, so that we can be one with God and one with each other. Let me go to uh, let me go to the to the book now if we can. Um, you remember that books chapters one through eight, um, the 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 largest part of that dealt with um, the Sermon on the Mount, Christ describing the Beatitudes and and the the blessedness that came to all those people who were marginalized. Blessed are the poor, the meek, the humble. You know, he goes on and on. That all those people who are outside. This has been so central to our reading. Most of the people within the world of respectability make those things more important than God. Wealth, security, pleasure, reputation with other people, social dignity, respectability, all of that. That that whole world tends to establish itself as a source of power. It was true for the Jews, it was true for the Romans, it was true for the Greeks. When that happened, that very world becomes oppressive of people who don't enter. Faulkner did this really well. Faulkner treated it really well, particularly in the town. Um, Melville did it in Moby Dick. So all the so many of the people that Christ was speaking to were the marginalized, those people who are outside of that established world. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, you know, all of those. And then he went into all of those in a way that showed the most important thing for us as humans is the inner life. That we have to do certain things, um, take certain things more seriously than we do and make them a part of our lives. Um, so he spent a good part of those opening chapters dealing with that. In, from chapters 9 through 16, Christ begins his ministry, and what we see him doing, um, generally speaking, um, is healing people who need heal, and teaching, and casting out demons. Um, now let me just, if I can, because there's too much, I want to I be careful of time, because we're getting close to time now. Um, he teaches, he teaches by parables, he's trying to help people see things, to learn things, to help their lives. He heals people constantly, 
and he casts out demons. And generally when he heals, he upsets um, the religious um, established order. Um, so let me take those two last things. Why, why, are, why are the Pharisees um, and the Sadducees and the scribes so upset with him? What do we learn from watching their reactions to Christ when he's doing these things? He's not supposed to be doing that. They're Why? the ones in charge, not him. What does it teach us? What does it teach us about them? Why? I mean, that's what he's saying. What? Sorry. That the Sadducees think he shouldn't be doing that. That's our job. No, but well, okay. Well, um. well the power has always rested in the Jewish community among the Levites, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, yeah. the followers of the law, and they're the ones who made the law. They're the ones who ran everything. So of course they're the most important thing, and now you've got somebody coming along who's challenging them which they did not like. So it's not only a challenge of priestly authority, but it's a challenge of common authority within the law. Because he's doing things outside of the law, and it's working. And people are happy, and people are amazed, and people are attributing God and the workings of God to a man that's outside the law. Well, that just ain't a good thing for them. Yeah. So they got rid of him. Yeah. Anybody add anything why the... I mean, because... Mark's right. The crowds are increasing in number. They're getting larger and larger. People are swarming to him. They're coming to hear him teach. They're coming to be healed. Some of them are demoniacs. They're, they're coming to be, um, to be made whole again, to have the demons cast out. And the general population um, is happy. Um, they're, they're thronging to him. While the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees are not... Can anybody add anything why why the Pharisees and the Sadducees are as upset as they are? In fact, you know that they reach a point where they want to kill him. They want to get rid of him. Well, I, I think it goes back, following up on Mark's comment, it goes back to the power thing. Um, if, you, if you look at the, the Jewish structure back in those days, the Sadducees and the Pharisees had all the power. I mean, they controlled literally everything. And they had established uh, an equilibrium, if you will, for lack of a better word, with the Romans. And as long as everything was quiet and um, uh, emotionally stable, the Romans would allow the Sadducees and the Pharisees to maintain that control. And Christ came in and he, he disturbed everything. Yeah. He challenged them. Uh, he he rallied the crowds, thousands of them, and um, the Sadducees and the Pharisees saw it all coming down around their shoulders, and uh, that was that was unacceptable. Yeah, in chapter twelve, I'm going to read a couple of passages here that that go to this question that I'm asking. Chapter twelve. Um, this is just shortly he has asked his disciples to do something, and he's actually at one point gathered them together and given them the authority to do all the things that he does. So these are men, ordinary human beings, who have now been vested with his authority and power. 
So he says, go cast out demons, teach in my name, heal. So he gathers them and he sends them out and he warns them. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Do not be afraid. This is what's going to happen. Um, <clears throat> and at the beginning of 12, he says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They ate, remember. Pharisees saw this and said, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was um, not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how at the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So the disciples were eating on the Sabbath day when they according to the law they shouldn't. And he's saying Um I yeah. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In, in um, 15, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples transgress the, tra the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, Why do you transgress the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother, let him surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Um, well did Isaiah prophecy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Um, um, comment on those two passages, can you? What's, what's he saying to the scribes and the Pharisees? Is, what's in common in both of those passages, even though they're dealing with very different things? The first one is interesting because at the very end, <clears throat> you know, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's kind of saying, you're not in charge, I am. Again, a play on the power, right? All of the laws and everything that they have held everyone else accountable to, he is throwing it right back in their faces, calling them hypocrites, and essentially proving they're hypocrites. So they're just frustrated beyond all belief because he's, he's calling them out to their face when nobody else had ever, probably ever done so. And he's calling in tradition not only them, but the tradition of the law, which for generation upon generation upon generation has kind of been the way it was. So, needless to say, they were not very happy. Remember in the segment he said, For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. Um, um, what you say is he gives the example of what they do, and I want to, I want to um, get here. What does he mean when he's saying that? What, are they, what exactly are they doing that's wrong? So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the one, the word of God. So he's not criticizing because of the law. 
itself because he's saying the word of God is the commandments are the word of God. There's nothing Christ did to break any of his father's commandments. He adheres to his law. But what they're doing here is something different. So in these two instances that I've read, he's taking them on the two different contexts. In one, they're harvesting and eating on the Sabbath, and in the other one, he's... But um, anybody else on those two? What's... I, I think he's telling them that they're getting... They're getting hung up in the weeds of the law, and they're losing the spirit of the law. I mean, God was, you know, in the, in the example of honor thy father and thy mother, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, particularly the Pharisees in this case, I think, were, were getting hung up on the detail of the law. And so, like, if your father or your mother does this and it violates the the legality of the law and Christ is trying to point out the difference between you know what what the mosaic law says and and what God's law means and I, I think if you kind of go through that whole last two weeks of Christ's life before the crucifixion he's constantly critiquing the Pharisees in the sense that you know you burden the people so much with you know these I, I forget how many laws there were now hundreds of laws There's 613 that, I think yeah that you know they you, you drown the spirit of the law and you know the people can't can't even figure out what's what's right and and what's wrong relative to the two very simple laws that Christ condensed you know the the ten laws down to basically two and I you know, I think it's been said before that basically they lost the love part, you know, the, the spirit of the law. I'm sorry, they lost one. The spirit of the law. Um, Tracy, do you have a thought on this? Do you want to add anything? I don't think so. A couple of thoughts of my own here. One is, um, remember that the Ten Commandments came from his father. And here he's not defending the first two. I mean, he does that in another passage when the guy says he's done everything he should in Christ, when he says he's followed the first two commandments to love God and love your neighbor. And then Christ went on to say, then give up everything and follow me. And the guy, if I think that's the passage where the guy goes away because he didn't want to give up everything. And here he says, I, in one of the passages I read, he said, I, I didn't want sacrifice. What I wanted was mercy. And we know that very often he gives mercy without violating the law. When he, when he told the judges to let who was without sin throw the first stone and they all walk away. And he says to the woman afterwards, go and sin no more. He wasn't doing away with the law. And here... It, um, it's really interesting that he's holding on to the commandment so far. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God because, remember, this is the Son of God. This is his Father. And he makes clear over and over again, he's come to give obedience to his Father. He's there to do his Father's will. He does not do away with the Ten Commandments. Absolutely. If you look at the Catholic um, Catechism, it's one of the central parts of the Catechism to take those laws seriously. Here... What he's making clear is that 
these fictional worlds that the that the religious orders have put in place of God's law gets in the way of it. So it's an illustration of the way human beings can do things with religious motives and think they're self-righteous and good and doing God, because they're saying, um, but you say, but you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So you're doing something for God, but what you're doing and doing that is actually dishonoring your father or your parents. So he's still adhering to his father's law, the commandments, and he's showing the Jews that what they've constructed in, in its place, the Ten Commandments, is something of their own. So it's an image of pride, particularly in a religious people, um, um, because they do it with the sense that they're doing it for God, but there's a danger because they're really doing it in their own pride. Now let me take a second. I want to get to this question about signs before we leave, but let me get to this question now. So here... It's clear that he's defending that, whatever it is, the fourth or fifth or sixth commandment to honor your mother and father. Um, what do you, how, set this passage where he's criticizing the, the, the Jewish religious leaders for constructing these laws really in their own pride, that they're putting something in the place of God in this religious fervor they're having, they're actually doing things that are not good. Here he's, he's defending his father's commandment love your mother and father, and there's an appropriateness here because he's the son of the father. The relationship between parents and, and children in the biblical tradition is not arbitrary the, would, the way it would be in a modern scientific view that says generation is just this process of evolution. There's a holiness attached to the relationship between parents and children. It's very special. And Christ is honoring it here. Set this passage against that other passage where he says, I came to divide. This is um, chapter 10, about 30, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter, he goes on and on. He who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He goes on. That's one. Set that against that. But there's the other one where the man comes to him and says, I want to follow you. But he says, let me, let me first bury my father. And Christ says, let the dead bury the dead. Um, so here he's saying, I've come to divide a father against son, daughter against mother. I've done, the one man comes to him and says, I want to um, follow you. And he says, um, let me bury my father first. And Christ says, let the dead bury the dead. So take this passage where he's defending his father's commandment, honor your mother and father, against these other passages that I've read. Can you make sense of them? What's, what do we learn from those? Uh, Bob, I don't know if, I mean, I, I honestly can't make sense of them, but it's interesting because you have a commandment of honoring your father and your mother in tradition, and then you have Christ saying, that tradition really doesn't mean anything. What matters is, what matters is, is the father. Um, what matters is the father? Where, wait, 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 sorry, where do you get that? 
Well, what matters most in, li- in, in everything is God, is your relationship with God. Right. right. Your belief in God. Uh, more than your mother and your father, more than your children, more than your wife, more than everything. Um, which is kind of how it is. But um, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are certain. You know, this is one of those many contradictions, and that's just you got to say, okay, it is what it is. Is it a contradiction, Doc? You had something. I I don't I don't know that I see it as a contradiction, Mark. Because I think what Christ is saying is that um, God's word to us is honor your father and mother in this life. So in this world where your father is um, getting old and senile, you need to take care of him. You need to honor him. You don't just say, I'm going to give it to God and then I'm done so I don't have to bother with you. You honor your father. But you don't ever let your father in this world be more important than your father in heaven. So but, I don't see it. I, I don't see it as a contradiction. Yeah. By the way, the passage that I was—it's in Matthew eight. Um, the crowds are gathering. A person comes up to him and says, "I will follow you wherever you go." Jesus said, "Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests." But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury... This is a disciple. Let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. What's he saying there? This guy wants to take care of his father. Wait, let's... I want to be clear because there's confusing things. So I want to... Suzanne is saying, if, if I've got... She's saying, there's no contradiction here. Christ is saying, following his father, doing his father's will, he's saying, honor your father and mother. When you guys make up all these laws and you use them to get away from honoring your father and your mother, so you say, I'm doing this um, so I don't have to do this for my dad or mom, that you're actually going against God's commandments. You're, You're replacing your human traditions with a divine order. God's laws from his father. The... I'm, I come not to bring peace. I came to bring division between a father and son, a mother and a daughter, you know, all of that. Once again, he's saying, that's not a contradiction. He's saying, um, if you honor God before all things, a family will be united. You'll all, you all be one. Or not. Or Well, well hold on. If a, if a father and son are worshiping God as they should, they'd be together. But where their interests divide, I mean, a father can care too much about the world, his job, material success, whatever. Or, you know, go, go wherever you will. But he's making clear over and over and over again that the father's will is everything. He's come to reveal the father and here's what he's doing. So when, when people... So he came to bring division, presumably because those divisions are going to make clear where they're not doing what the father asked or he... So I don't think there's a a contradiction there following Suzanne. But here's this disciple who comes and says, but let me first bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What does he mean? This guy says, I want to go take care of my dad. And after I've done that, then I'll follow you. And Christ is saying, no, let the dead follow or bury the dead. What is he saying? Jesus is God is more important than human traditions. 
God is more important than what? Say again. Human traditions. Yes. Burying, your, burying the dead. Yes. Or whatever human tradition there happens to be. Why does, he use the, why does he use the word dead, Mark? Let the dead... What? Hold on. This disciple is alive. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. This disciple is alive. He says, I want to follow you. And he said, let me first bury my father. He doesn't say, he doesn't say no, you're making a human tradition more important. He's saying, let the dead bury the dead. Why does he use that language? Because he's Jesus and he wanted to. It's good enough for me. <laughs> Francis, can I, can, I, sorry, Francis, where are you on this? Spiritual. Why, be well, still. Tell, God, get him out. Francis. Well, well okay, first of all, the, the, uh, the disciple or the one that wanted to follow and said, well, let me go bury my father first. He always got it that he wouldn't go follow Christ until his father had died. So it may not have been that his father had just died. It meant that, okay, when it's, you know, convenient, when my father died, I'll go follow, follow you. So he was putting his before God. Yeah, yes. But now my question is, why did Christ use the word, but let the dead bury the dead? Oh, the dead, well, the spirit, well, I don't know, the spiritually, maybe he means spiritually dead, not physically dead. That's what I've always thought. I uh, thought he was saying, let the people who are dead to God bury the people who are physically dead. Um, because if you're alive to God, you're going to be responsive to God first. Yeah. If I can pick this up, because I, I mean, it's one of those things again. Remember that, um, wait, wait, by the way, we, I read that passage where he described um, David's men eating the, the presence, the bread of presence, that Christ describes himself. Wait, let me go back. Sorry. We can't live without food. I hope that's self-evident. That, that doesn't need a scientific argument. Actually, it has one. Don't eat food and you're going to die. We have to have food. It's essential for our well-being. If, if we don't, we die. Christ described himself as the living bread. So people without it will die, but people with that living bread will live. He said, I'm the eternal bread. I'm the bread of life. And he said, unless you eat of me, so he was saying, people eat to live. They eat food. But when mortality comes, they're going to die. If they don't have that living bread, they will not live eternally. I mean, that's sort of a brief breakdown of a principle. Um, here he says, let the dead bury the dead. So um, um, there's a sense in which he seems to be saying, I mean, using Francis's and Suzanne's words, that there are people who are among the living who are in some ways half dead, that they're so living for the world that in some respects that let the dead bury the dead. Um, they're not fully alive to him. So, I mean, as Francis described it, this guy is putting his family or his father or other concerns ahead of Christ. And it's a Christ's response is framed in words that leave us wondering whether he's really spiritually alive or not. Um, 
So there are all these questions on family where, where the family's important and Christ is defending it as one of his, under one of his father's commandments, yet he says these other things. I don't think they're contradictory at all. I think they're all consistent. They all, they all suggest a certain relationship with God, which means a certain relationship with Christ in the way we live our lives, whether we let the worldly things keep us from standing with God the way we're called to do. I, can put it. I want to end with this one passage. Christ repeated this a number of times. After he, after he gave the Sermon on the Mount with the 5,000, um, the disciples come to him and ask for a sign. When he does it, uh, um, he does it again with the 4,000. Um, the, um, the, the Pharisees come. This is 12 again, Act 12, about line 40 or so. They come to him a couple of times and ask him for a sign. Twice in Matthew. This is one of them. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will Son of Man be three days, three nights. The men of Nineveh will arise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will arise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something um, greater than Solomon is here. When the disciples asked him for a sign, he got angry at them. I mean, a couple of times he says, do I have to keep doing this? Um, and he told him that the only sign they get is the sign of Jonah. He uses this phrase here, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. He says it again um, when they, um, the Pharisees come again, and he says the same thing. Um, what do they mean when they say, give us a sign? What do the disciples mean when they say, give us a sign? And how are we to understand when, he, when Christ says, um, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but the only sign you'll get is the sign of Jonah? What's he saying? Yeah, the other one is in... Uh, in uh, well, it's early in our number of passages, but what's he saying? What's he saying? What are people doing when they go to Christ, whether it's his disciples or the Pharisees and Sadducees, and say, show us a sign? What is it they want? The, the disciples just saw Christ perform a miracle. Here he, he identifies it with evil, and he even goes so far to say, the only sign you'll get is the Jonah sign, and then he says, the men of Nineveh will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. By the way, one, one, I'm going to make this point one second um, um, before, we, um, before we end this chapter. Um, I asked the question at the beginning, um, what's the aim of the gospel? What, are, what, is, what is Matthew attempting to do? Um, he's come to show Christ, like all of them, to show this man who claims he's God, to show 
what he's doing and why he's doing it to help us. Um, and he, he says n numerous times in Matthew, he's come for the house of Israel. Um, a Canaanite woman comes up to him and asks for help, and the disciples turn away, and he says, I came for the house of Israel, um, um, but he's, he's suddenly called beyond it to the Gentiles. And when he sends his disciples out at, the, at that one point when he prepares them, he says, um, go everywhere <laughs> but the house of Israel. Um, talk to everybody. And um, there's that one instance where he's turned away from his own town because the people he grew up with don't believe him. The Jews around him, so many of them are not repenting. They're not converting. What are these people doing who ask for a sign? And why does Christ respond um, with the anger that he shows, telling them they'll be condemned? Um, says, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What are people asking when they ask for a sign? Why do the Pharisees come? What does that mean? Why, what are they doing? And why is he upset with them? And why do the disciples do the same thing? They're all Jews. The disciples are all Jews. The Pharisees and Sadducees are. They come from the same tradition. They're asking for a sign. It says the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Bring it back to what you were saying earlier. Don't put God to the test. Flesh that out, will you, Mark? That's... I mean, the interesting thing about whenever Jesus talks about, don't, you know, talks about the Father, he's kind of talking about himself. So I've always wondered if it was a first or second person discussion, right? Is he saying, don't tempt God or don't tempt me? <clears throat> um, but it's also from the very first thing that you were, we were talking about earlier that you brought up, um, do not, you know, you should not tempt the Lord. By ask by continue well number one he's giving signs and it's like they're not seeing them so his frustration is there what do you mean I just did this and now you want another sign so there's the frustration I think part of it but it's also they continually keep asking for a sign as if you if you only do this this one more thing I might believe when if you don't get it already you're not going to get it. and so there there's the the continual asking and tempting of the Lord and. You know, I guess God's patience has its limits, just like everybody else's. Um, but but I, I think that's what it is more than anything. Don't tempt him, plus the frustration of he's doing all this great stuff, yet they still want more. So so you know, what's it going to take for you to believe? And then bring it back to Nineveh. You know, Jonah went there begrudgingly, uh, told the king what to do. Everybody put on a sackcloth and ashes, blah, blah, blah. Everybody repented. He goes, they were... He's, I, I think, anyway, from, from my understanding of this, mm -hmm. is that he's telling him those people are in line before you, because they were given us, they weren't given any sign except Jonah walking through the streets, and they repented and they believed, and you're getting shown all of these signs. You still want more, and you still don't believe. So the how it? Yeah, okay. is it just a matter of belief, or something more here? Doc, you've been reading Jonah. What do you? Do you have any thoughts on this, what he's saying? Well, I think Mark's right about that. I mean, Jonah didn't, to the people of Nineveh, they didn't know about the whale. 
Except they had, I mean, what he, one of the things he was doing, one of the things he sent to do, would have caused all the Ninevites to hate him. Because he said, mm -hmm. if you don't change, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, but, sorry, go ahead. Well, and then they changed. I mean, they didn't get a sign. They just believed him. Um, they didn't know about the whale. There was, for the Ninevites, there was no sign of Jonah. Mm -hmm. They just heard God speaking through Jonah, and they believed him. What I'm, what I'm tripping over is just, it, it, is it just a matter of belief? But here, let me go. What, what, are the, what are all these disciples and the Jews asking when they say, give me a sign? Leave Jonah out for a second. What do they, what do they want? I think Mark's right. Christ is, they've just experienced a miracle, and he's right on in what he's saying. Can anybody add anything? What is it they're asking for when they say, give us a sign? Maybe something about what they expect their king or messiah to be that Jesus is a meeting up to. I was going to say, it seems to me that what they're saying is, I, I need something more. I need you to give some, some sign to me in response to my asking for a sign if you want my faith. So do this for me, for me, not for all the people. Do this for me. And then I'll believe, maybe. I'm tripping on this. Fred, do you have it before? Because we've got to wind this up here. I'm way, sorry, I'm way past. Fred, do you have, or Francis, do you guys have a thought on this? <laughs> I, to me, I, I think it, it goes back to the Israelites in the desert. I mean, they could never be, no matter what they saw, what they experienced, it was too abstract for them. They couldn't, they couldn't get their arms around it. And I think, I think Christ is seeing the same thing here. And when they, when they say they want a sign, I, they want something that is absolute, you know, that without a, it doesn't require any effort on my part to be convinced. It is so overwhelming that you have to be God. So, you know, like Jesus starts rising up into the clouds and God comes out and shines on him. And this is, this is my son, you know, shut up and pay attention. Kind of thing, you know, it was just, you know, you know what they experienced. I mean, there were other guys going around pretending to be magicians, yeah, making, yeah, you know, yeah, smoke and mirrors yeah, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, And it wasn't enough for them. I mean, they it required a leap of faith that they just weren't yet capable of making. And I think Mark is right. I mean, you know, Christ is God, and 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 God must have been thinking. And he must be thinking the same thing now, right? It's like, what do I have to, to do? do. <laughs> you know? I mean, this goes back to, they had 40 years in the desert, and they couldn't. Yeah. And right. they couldn't come around. Right. You know, three, right. three generations or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I think that's, they just, they wanted something that was indisputable. Yeah. As opposed to something that required them to make an effort of faith. And, and I think, 
I think I think it was Mark that said. So going back to the story of Jonah, there was an example of what he was trying to tell them they needed to be able to do. You know, they didn't see Jonah spending three days in the whale and getting regurgitated out through the blowhole or whatever it was. You know, they just had him walking through the city telling them. And I mean, they've been walking, well, it hadn't been three years yet, but I mean, let's face it, these guys walked around with him for three years. They still weren't convinced. So the Holy Spirit came on. Yeah, it's still a problem. Yeah. Let me just add. Faith they weren't ready yet to make. Yeah, yeah. Tracy, do you, last thought? or Let me just add this thought to what you guys are saying because I think it's all true. Um, what I see in the disciples and the Sadducees, particularly in the Sadducees, and it seems to me it's very human because it's shared between them. They, they both ask for signs. When you ask for a sign, you're asking for something that you think will give you control. So it's a rationalization of a miracle. It, it puts it in your hands. It makes it something you can control. So there's an, an element of trying to bring something divine. It's, it's like all the three temptations. Do this so we'll be happy. Um, tempt, you know, that if all of those things get returned to men so that they can do any of those things, they don't need God. There's an aspect of that kind of pride behind, I think, what they're asking for. Because without it, they, they live day to day in uncertainties and miracles and turning to God. And instead of having everything under their control, having things the way they want it, um, the, the danger is in making these traditions around themselves. Um, so when they're asking for a sign, there's there's something of that. And when he says that the, the the Ninevites will come up and condemn you, I think he's got particularly the house of Israel in his mind because he initially he says he came for the house of Israel, and then he begins to go out to other people. But but over and over and over again, he keeps finding the Jewish people as a nation, stiff-necked, stubborn, um, wanting things their way. Um, <clears throat> so I think there's something of that going on in both, and I think it's more entrenched in the in the Jewish leaders because they've got these religious beliefs, and Christ is shaking that up in his in his disciples. But it's not. I don't think it's just a matter of belief, because it wasn't just a matter of belief for Jonah. Jonah had to do something. God asked him. God asked him to do something that he knew would bring down the wrath of the, or he thought would bring down the wrath of the Ninevites against him. Um, what the Ninevites had to do is repent. And what God, I mean, what he's saying here, quite, I think quite clearly, is um, the men of Nineveh will arise at the judgment and condemn the preaching book because they repented. These men aren't. It's not just a matter of belief. You could have believed what Christ did. or um, Because everything he did was to show his power and, um, I mean, that was one of the major things. And, remember, his ministry begins with a call to repentance. That he's asking everybody to repent, to change their lives, to turn to God for help. What we keep seeing in the Jewish leaders is they, they keep replacing these traditions that they created. I mean, I, it goes to what Mark said earlier. They have no reason to repent. Everything's under their control. So Christ, in so much of what he's doing, is... Um, is helping to people to see that he can do things that they cannot, 
that it's absolutely crucial for them to go to him and to repent, to turn away from those things of the world that keep them from turning to God, either materialistically in wanting bread or in presuming and acts of presumption or in making other things more important than God, giving things that power over them. Um, let's stop because I'm sorry, I'm way over. Um, next week, I mean, I think we're, we're getting far enough along that I can, we can spend more time reading through passages um, with some of these principles behind us to see exactly what he's doing. We're at a place now where he's making it clear to the disciples that he's got to go to Jerusalem, even though everybody knows it's going to be more dangerous for him. They don't understand completely why he does. He knows that he's going to his death. So the, in the chapters ahead, he's there's a transition. He's he, he, The ministry that he's done, the all that he's accomplished to turn people towards him and to, to begin the establishment of the church and what he's been teaching his disciples, that's all going to shift. Um, he's going to Jerusalem. Um, things will slightly change. He's going to carry on his ministry. He'll do things, but he knows he's going to his death and he's trying to help his disciples get ready for as ready as they can, given that they don't always understand things very well. But um, let's stop here. So next week we'll we'll do what sixteen and eight is twenty four. Sixteen we'll sixteen to the end. We'll do sixteen to the end. We may not cover it all, but let's let's see if we can't cover the last third of the of Matthew and see what we come up with. Okay. You guys all stay safe. Be careful. Well, I don't say. I mean, people are getting corona, but they're like Mark. I mean, they're doing amazing. So stay healthy and stay safe and um, read the last third of Matthew and we'll pick up here. Bye. It's good to see you guys. Um, see you next week. Bye. Bye. What do I do here? I don't know how to get out of here. Oh, God. I've got to die.